This audio recording is brought to you by BMA Theological Seminary. For more information on the BMA Theological Seminary, go to bmats.edu. We'll uh, begin by kind of going over a brief context of where we are at in this, in this book. As we know, this psalm is a song of ascent. But that being said, there's really no historical record as to what that actually means. I mean, we, we have some ideas and some conjecture as to what this might be, but we really don't know the history or the historical context behind these psalms. But what we do know is that they are in God's Word and that they contain truths for us nonetheless. And so, even though there is no historical context... There is some literary context we can look at. In the Songs of Ascents, we see that many of these are grouped in groups of three. And in this psalm, it's in the, at the end of a group of Psalm 123 through 125. And in Psalm 123, we see that the psalmist and the people of God are looking to God for mercy. And they're looking to God for mercy because they are surrounded by people who are scornful, who have contempt for, because of them who disrespect them and who are disrespectful to them just because they have faith in God. They have faith in God, and so these people are disrespectful, they're scornful, they're full of contempt, and they're proud of the fact that they do not follow God. Then we move on to Psalm 124, where we pick up where the people of Israel are now rejoicing on the fact that the Lord was on their side. It's kind of interesting that the mocking and the derision and the scorn usually doesn't stop there, but ends up resulting in some sort of violence. And in here, Psalm 124, we see the people of God. We see David as the writer of Psalm 124 proclaiming that he is happy, he is glad because the Lord is on his side. And if it had not been for the Lord who was on his side, on their side, then they would have been overcome by those who were evil. And what we see at the end of that is that the Lord God Yahweh of Israel, the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, is the one who is on the side of Israel. And therefore, they have hope because the Lord is on their side. Not some false gods, but the Lord who created and sustains everyone and everything. And that kind of brings us to where we are now, Psalm 125, where we look at how God provides peace for His people. That's a thing we all tend to long for is peace. I mean, just yesterday, on May 2nd, my family remembered a time in our life when something happened when I was in in third grade that made me realize that there is not a whole lot of peace in this world. One, September 1, 2011, excuse me, September 11th, 2001, happened where we saw the airplanes flown into the World Trade Centers. That kind of opened my eyes a little bit, but I, I was in third grade. I didn't quite understand the, the fact of evil that exists and people just seeking to do harm to people. But then on May 2nd, 2002, I was still in third grade. It was just after school, about 3.45, I was at my grandmother's house, and I see on the news a report that there had been some officers shot, and I'm looking, and I'm seeing this guy wounded, it's how I'll describe it, just say wounded on the field. 
And he looked a whole lot like my uncle. And I, but we hadn't been called yet, and my mom was like, well, I saw it too, but he's not supposed to be in that location, and they would have called us if it was really him. Well, later that evening, we did get a phone call, and it was him. Times like that in, where violence occurs makes us long for peace. Those things get etched into our minds. There's circumstances in our, in our lives that become etched in our minds. It's usually not good circumstances. It's ones that involve violence, that involve chaos, that involve hurt, that involve pain. But it's not always these violent experiences that make us want peace. Sometimes it's more peaceful in appearance items that make us want peace. I've had the disfortune of being involved in a church that went through a church split. And if many of you have ever been through a church split, you know that those are not fun. It is painful to see God's people at war with one another. To see the gossip and the slander that exists. To see the the hurt feelings that exist. We have this desire for peace. There's always a segment in those churches that just want peace, that just want everyone to get along. We see in the New Testament that the world is against Christ. We can see around us now the world being against Christ. We see more news coverage of persecutions in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, where people are being killed and martyred because of their claim to follow Christ. But we also see where... A gentleman, I use that term loosely, got mad at some in-laws, some relatives down in South Texas and took it out on their entire church congregation, killing many of them. We've had to have the sheriff come to our church and give us some insight, some tips on how to keep us safe in this world that is becoming more violent. And all the while we have ladies in our our church who'd been there for 60, 70 years that remember a time when they didn't have to worry about those things. We long for peace. But, like I said, this is nothing new. In the New Testament, Jesus said, the world was against me, it's going to be against you. We see in Psalm 123 and 124 that people mocked God's people, they derided them, they disrespected them, And they even resorted to violence. But because the Lord was on their side, they overcame those things. And so the good news for us today is that God has provided mercy, that God has provided peace for His church through Christ. So in Christ, we have peace in multiple facets. One of these is that we have peace with God. We were enemies of God in rebellion against Him just like the rest of the world. But God in His goodness through Christ decided to take individuals out of this world and place them into His kingdom. Making it where they have peace with God. Those whom God has drawn to Himself through the proclamation of His Word end up trusting in God and in so doing are secured and made not enemies of God, but friends of God, made peace with God. They have assurance in their hope because their their assurance is not in that they did something for it, but that God had done everything for it. 
So we have this assurance of hope and we have this promise of a future inheritance. It reminds me in the book of Daniel when Daniel was about to be thrown into the lion's den. And when he's about to be thrown in there, he makes this statement that whether the Lord delivers him from the mouth of the lions or into his hands, he will rejoice. We have this promise of a future inheritance which aids in our, our peace that Christ has provided, that God has provided through Christ. And all these things here are hinged on our trust and our faith in the finished work of Christ. It's my opinion that we can take the words of Psalm 125 and apply them directly to the church today. Now, I say that's my opinion, but I believe that's actually the opinion of the writers of the New Testament. And the reason I say that in the book of Romans chapter 9, we see that the children of Abraham are not the offspring of Abraham, but those who believe in Jesus Christ. We see in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, we see that neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And so, what we see from the New Testament is that the New Testament writers believed that those who trusted in Christ were the true Israel of God, were the recipients of the covenant given to Abraham. And so as a result, we can look at Psalm 125 and see how God grants peace to his people in 125 and trust in those same things for us today as the people of God. And so in this text, we see that we can have peace because God surrounds his people. That statement is made in verse 2 where he says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. That's where our hope stems from is that the Lord surrounds his people. And in this text, what we're going to see is three actions that God takes to provide peace for his people. The first action is that he preserves his people. The second action is that he protects his people. And the third action is that he purifies his people. So the first action is that he preserves his people. You look in verse 1, it speaks of how those who trust in the Lord are likened to Mount Zion which says they will not be moved, but abide forever. Their status remains. Those who trust in God are deemed redeemed and justified, and nothing can change that for those who have true faith in what Christ has done. For those who have true faith in God, their status as redeemed, as justified because of the righteousness of Christ, placed on them because of their faith in Him, will never change. But it's not just their status that remains the same. It's their faith that endures and perseveres. They're likened to this mountain that cannot move. They're likened to this mountain that abides forever. And it's speaking of their status. It's speaking of their, of their faith. The psalmist uses the illustration of Mount Zion. That's what they're likened to. Now, many commentators and different people view this many different ways. One view is to take it as totally spiritual, where it's just talking about heaven. And that's what it's talking about. It's like they're like the kingdom of God in heaven because the kingdom of God remains and abides forever. And 
you know, that could be true. But I think if we take it solely as just spiritual, I think we miss something. I think we miss the imagery that the psalmist is trying to portray to us. That the people of God are like this mountain. They're like Mount Zion. Mountains cannot move. Or at least they couldn't move then. We can blow them up with dynamite now. But then when this is written, they couldn't be moved. They couldn't just destroy a mountain in one fell press of a button. That's it. They can't be moved. They're unshaken. They abide forever. The psalmist is pulling on this imagery of a sturdy, steadfast mountain to talk about and explain the faith and the status of those that trust in God. So not only is their status, not only is that persevered or preserved, not only is their faith preserved, and not only does God preserve His people, but we also see that God protects His people. We see in verse 2, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. We see here again the imagery of mountains. To describe how the Lord surrounds His people, defends His people, protects His people. Jerusalem was surrounded by mountains. So much so that some have spoken about Jerusalem as being in the middle of a cauldron. A cauldron of mountains. And these mountains, they appear to be an impenetrable barrier between the outside world and Israel. Yet, still, Israel has been conquered. Israel has had, Jerusalem has had things happen to it. So what is this actually talking about? Is this really a good illustration that the psalmist is using? I think what the psalmist is doing here is painting for us a picture that what the mountains appear to be, God is. The mountains appear to be this impenetrable barrier that protects his people, but God is the impenetrable barrier that protects his people through Christ. Now, does this mean that God's people will never hurt? No. Does that mean that God's people will never be harmed? No. In fact, we were promised that just two days ago, we, sp- we had Dr. Miller here, and he spoke of how God's gracious gift is, one, our faith, but two, our suffering. Suffering is a gracious gift from God. So how is it that God protects His people but yet graciously gives them suffering. It took me a little bit to try to ponder this, but I think that Scripture portrays this as what God does through those circumstances, shapes and molds His people into the likeness of Christ. As Dr. Miller said, when, when we suffer, we share in the sufferings, of Christ, we become more likened to Christ. Not that we, you know, can pay for people's sins because we suffer. Not that we should go out looking for suffering, but that in our suffering we become like Christ in that regard. And so He surrounds His people. He allows them to be persecuted, so to speak, in order to strengthen their faith, in order to show the true genuineness. Of their faith. We see in, in Romans 8 28 that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We see that all things, whether good or bad, work for 
our good and for God's glory. We see further up in that chapter that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the eternal glories that we receive. You see, just as we referred to Daniel earlier and his, his hope that he had in the future blessing, the future inheritance that he would have in, in God, with God in his presence, that too is what God protects and secures for us. In this world, we may find tribulations. In fact, the Bible says we will. But the world is not our home. We're passing through. And so the Lord protects us by allowing us to pass through these things and carrying us into His hands. So He not only protects us by surrounding His people, but He also protects us by limiting wicked rule. By limiting wicked rule. We see in verse 3 that the scepter of the wickedness shall not rest on the land of lauded to the righteous. The scepter of the wickedness being like the sovereign rule of wickedness, the sovereign rule of the unrighteous, shall not rest upon the land of wickedness forever. It shall not abide there. It shall not remain there. And we're given a reason why that is so. And that reason is, if the wicked were allowed to remain there, then the righteous would stretch out their hands to do evil. When me and my wife were going through this, that's a question we have. What does it mean, the, the righteous sticking out their hands to do evil? What, is that, what does that mean? Does that mean we're going to overthrow the ruler? Is that what it's talking about? But what we see, and what we see in Scripture, and what we see in the world around us is that we begin to look and mirror the actions, character, and fruit of our leaders. Throughout the Old Testament, you would see that when you had a wicked king, Israel soon began to follow the wicked ways. They would turn from serving God and follow what the king had decreed or what the king thought was good and what the king thought they should, should follow. And the same is true for our churches. Let that sink in for a second. If you're the pastor of a church, after time, your people will look like you. Now, that's not physically. But they'll share the same mannerisms, thought processes about Scripture, temptations. We really need to be introspective here and ask ourselves, do we really want the people in our care to resemble who we are right now? Do we want them to resemble who we are right now? This right here beckons a self-examination of who we are in Christ. It forces us to come face to face and examine ourselves. Are we following Christ as we ought to Or perhaps are we in wickedness and unrighteousness? Because it's a dire warning to pastors who are caught up in wickedness. And the warning is that you will not remain in the church forever. That the Lord will remove you from thy office if need be. But this goes far farther than just the church. Think of the world. We have mayors, we have governors, we have presidents, monarchs, dictators, all sorts of things... And none of them are 100% completely righteous. 
thank God that one day this world will pass away. And these people who feel like they have sovereign rule but ultimately don't will, as the Bible says, like all of us, bow and confess Christ as Lord. And the Lord will be the king. He will be the sovereign ruler. And so the Lord doesn't allow them, the unrighteous, to have sovereign rule because that alone belongs to him. And so it beckons us once again for self-assessment. Do we look like Christ? Paul, in his writings, said that he wanted them to follow him as he followed Christ. As was mentioned earlier, many of us, the people under our care, will end up looking like us. And so, when, can we truly say to them, follow me as I follow Christ? Does our walk exhibit a walk that is becoming more conformed to the image of Christ? Or are we being conformed to something other than Christ? Which that's a very interesting thing that the psalmist puts here about not allowing the wicked rule and then us thinking about the church and the pastors and possible wickedness within the church because the next thing we see is that God purifies His church. That God purifies His church. He separates people on the basis of their faith. On the basis of their faith, He separates people. We see in this verse, in this chapter, that there are two types of faith. We have true faith and we have deceptive faith. The marks and distinctions of true faith is that they are good and upright in heart. Well, on our own, that's none of us. We need Christ. That's, That's the idea here is that true faith comes from what God has done through Christ alone. That in Him, we truly are a new creation. That's why Paul says in Galatians all throughout the book is that it's nothing that we can do. In fact, if we add to it, if we try to do something, then Christ died for no reason. But rather, it's the new creation that we are in Christ. We, in Christ, put off our old wicked ways and put on the righteousness of Christ and strive after Him in obedience to Him out of gratefulness of what He has done. So they are good and upright. That's the marks of true faith. But then there's also deceptive faith. And that is self-deceiving. The reason I say that is because many of us in here we all are probably going to say, yeah, I believe in Christ. I'm faithful. I trust Christ. I'm a Christian. But this deceptive faith sometimes deceives us more than it deceives other people. People can see our fruit. But oftentimes we can't see our own fruit. And so we need to really take a look and examine our lives here and ask ourselves, do we have true faith Or do we have a deceptive faith? Here's a warning and an encouragement. The encouragement is that to those that are good, those that are upright in heart, those that truly are the people of God, God will do good to. He will bless them. But to those who are not, He will lead away with the evildoers. Now in our churches, we we believe a beautiful doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. However... 
we have distorted and maligned this doctrine over many decades in our churches to make it seem that people, all they have to do is walk down the aisle, say a nice little superstitious prayer, and no matter what they do, they're safe. They're fine. That's a lot of the reason that we have so many people on our rolls at church, but not very many in the church. We have given people a false sense of security. We are warned in Scripture that those who do not continue in faith are not the people of God. It doesn't matter how many times they say a prayer, how many times they were baptized, if they do not continue in faith, they are not the people of God. And so what is that doctrine then, the perseverance of the saints? It's that those who are truly followers of Christ will continue in faith and repentance throughout the course of their entire lives. In fact, we see in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 22, where it talks about how there will be many people who come to Christ on that last day and say, well, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he just looks at him and says, get away from me. I never knew you. Go away. That's a scary thought. That's a picture of people that had a deceptive faith. There are people that stand in pulpits and proclaim to God, proclaim Christ their entire lives, who will show up on that day and be turned away because they never trusted God. They had the appearance of godliness, but were consistently turning back to their wicked ways. But then we see in John 15 another example of this in which we're talk, we see about those that abide in Christ, they remain, but those who do not abide are cut off, gathered, and burned. Once again, the appearance of godliness, but the fruit of wickedness. We see that consistently throughout Scripture, those people are described as being cut off from Christ, being cut off and thrown away. God purifies his church by separating the true believers from the false believers. And the sad truth is that in our churches there are a mixture of true believers and false believers. And that is why we must proclaim Christ in hopes that they will see the deception that they are in. Because through the preaching of Christ, through the true exposition of the word, God purifies his church. But he also, at that last day, will purify his church and separate the wheat from the tares. So these three acts that God does in preserving, protecting, and purifying, these result in peace for the church. Because we see that God surrounds his people so that they can have peace no matter their circumstances. No matter the fact that someone's making fun of them. No matter the fact if they stand up for truth and no other church does. They can rest in the fact that God is surrounding them. That God is providing peace for them. He's providing peace for His church. For all those that truly trust in God. So that they can trust Him 
and can have peace. The last verse, the last statement of the last verse is peace be upon Israel. There's a warning here to the wicked throughout this whole thing. That warning is that the peace of the church depends on the overthrow of the wicked. So I want to leave you with this. Examine yourself. Determine. Ask the Lord to determine for you and show you if you are in true faith or in deceptive faith. I also would urge you this morning to believe in the truth that the Lord God surrounds you and your church and has provided peace for you and your church through the work of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have given us. We thank you for Christ. And Father, though we have tribulation in this world, we thank you for the peace that comes from knowing that you are ultimately in control, that you preserve your true church, that you protect your true church, and Father, that you purify your church. Father, our hope is not in what we can do, but only in what you have done. And so, Father, I ask that you would give us the faith that we need to carry on, that you would enable repentance, and, Father, that you would go on continuing to build your kingdom and bringing people out from walking their wicked way and transforming their hearts to be good and upright followers and members of your kingdom. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.